Excellence Expected, the inspirational business advice podcast. Hello and welcome to Excellence Expected. My name is Mark Asquith. This week's episode features a guest who will be sharing some insights and some practical advice based on her own expertise in running a successful recruitment business. The insights and expertise that my guest will share this week will help you as a business owner source and keep the finest talent within your business. Welcome, Louisa Harrison-Walker. Thank you. Tell me about Benchmark. Tell me about you guys. Benchmark Recruitment is your business Mm -hmm. and... What is it you guys do and where did you come from? Okay. Um, well, we are a boutique employment consultancy. Um, I stress the boutique side because that's very different to high street recruitment agencies. You know, the ones that people will have heard of, the big, you know, your Hayes, your Office Angels, your big sort of super brands. Um, we are a consultancy. Uh, we're based in Sheffield um, and we supply staff across five main sectors um, through uh, Yorkshire, Lancashire and the Midlands. Um, from entry level right up to board appointment level. Um, where did the business come from? Where did we start from? Um, I've worked in recruitment for about 15 years now. I worked um, for one of the big names, um, was a senior consultant there, looked after a team, was there five years, um, did really well there. Actually, my final year came first in the company for for what I do Um placing people in permanent jobs. And I thought, "Mm, I have some issues with the way that the organization focuses on just the numbers and the revenue. And they don't really seem to be very caring with regards to the companies they work with and the candidates that they get jobs for. And my best friend at the time was taking a voluntary redundancy. So I, um, I kind of, um, you know, pulled her along and said, come on, this is something we could do together. She came from training background, training HR management background. And so together we just thought there's a real opportunity here to do it really well. Um, and that, that's why we set off really. Super. Well, that's a, that's a good story. So mm-hmm. you dragged your friend along then. Is I she did. still in the business? She is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. She's in the business. Yeah. So we've been going, this, going into our ninth year now. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. And best year so far. So we've got the best team we've ever had, the biggest team we've ever had. Um, our turnover has increased year on year on year. Um, our, um, when we first started, we were nominated for a few awards like the Sheffield Business Award, Startup Award. Um, in 2010, we won the Yorkshire Post um, Excellence in Business Award. And the thing probably I'm one of the most proud of is that this year we've been shortlist- shortlisted for uh, the Yorkshire Post Most Outstanding Employer. Um, which I'm really pleased about. And that's obviously based on all the principles and practices that we've put in place that we preach um, about how to attract people, how to look after them, how to retain them and how to develop them. Oh, congratulations. Thank well, you. That's, that's quite an accolade. And yeah. what the listeners out there won't see is that you guys, Benchmark Recruitment, are extremely well-branded as well. Mm. Look fantastic. I noticed outside on reception, actually, you've got an award for the for the branding, haven't yes. you? Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. That's good. That's fantastic. And it does, I mean, the atmosphere... For candidates, I remember going a long time ago to one of the high street brands uh, as a as a candidate, and it certainly wasn't like this. This is a very good atmosphere. It's very chilled. It's very fresh, and you just get the air of confidence and comfort as, oh, you, as you walk you. in. That's nice. Oh. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that that was quite important, really, that we that we differentiated ourselves from the onset. Um, you know, so that people realised that we were different. Um, so we've actually had in the eight years, I think. 
two rebrands. I think this was, yeah. And just as we moved offices a couple of years ago, we took the opportunity to um, kind of draw a line in the sand, like new offices, new premises, which we had all custom built, you know, with the interview rooms, the boardroom, the, the big main open office for everybody work together. Um, and yeah, so it's all around ambitions and childhood ambitions and what you wanted to be when you grow up. Because ultimately that's what we do is help people better themselves and get better jobs it's it's a really emotional journey changing jobs or getting a better job and we're really privileged that we get to help people do that and become um you know more successful become happier have better work-life balance have um better salary be able to get a mortgage whatever it is that you know the reasons that they're changing jobs and I think um what we found what Amy found is my business partner really hard when we first started in recruitment was she was not prepared for the negative perceptions that people have of uh, recruitment mm. because they're only really aware of high street recruitment and they think that everybody is, you know, that kind of car salesman type. Um, so she wasn't, she found that really difficult at first. Um, and so when we, when we decided to do the rebrand, um, that's, I asked, you know, I said, really what we're looking um, to do is kind of, um, I suppose, remind ourselves what we do it for. Mm. And actually, it's something to be really proud of is, you know, you help people get better jobs. But equally, there's so many companies I work with that I know, had I not approached them and made them aware of a certain person at a certain time, their business wouldn't be doing as well. Because you you see the talent as it comes through. Mm. And if you have good relationships with your clients, you will give them a heads up and say, you know, I've just seen this person. This is what they've done. They've used either, um, you know, they've been exposed to either um, similar clients to you, similar products, similar software, whatever it is that's transferable. Um, and because if you're in the know and you uh, make people aware of that, they get first refusal on those people, mm. then that's really valuable to those organisations. So it's very much it's very much relationship oriented, isn't it? It's, 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 it's entirely relationship orientated. Certainly yeah. not around the numbers like the, I, I don't have that much experience with recruitment as such, but I guess it is very much numbers based a lot of the time with the high street guys. Yeah, it is. The problem you'll find with the high streets in, you know, for big volume, low margin, um, they do a job. Um, where I'm, where I work and the companies we work with um, are predominantly SMEs and, you know, organisations are looking to grow, that understand that you don't build a business, you build people and that's what builds your business. And they don't want bums on seats moving every six months. And, um, you know, that's not what they're looking for. Um, what you'll, the problem you'll find with the high streets is the people that they employ will be coming in entry level. You know, they will be young, young, inexperienced people. It's a really hard job to do. You need a real mixture of skills to be good in recruitment. You know, you need to be confident and be salesy to open doors for people, but you need to be um, sensitive and tactful to mediate, you know, through every stage. Um, and you need to be good at holding your own and managing expectations when you have people saying, um, you know, when they have unrealistic expectations of, I want somebody who can do this, this and this, who, you know, is like this, this and this personality wise, but I only want to pay this, this, this. And you're like, well, that's not going to happen. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a real mixture of skill set. So a lot of people don't make it very long, you know, six, nine months um, and they're out. And so then a new person comes in. So what will happen is if you're a client of somewhere like that, any knowledge that person's built up over time about you and your company goes every time mm. that person goes um, and I think that's where we've had good success is we pay more, we look after people better. So we've got people here who've got, um, you know, Claire's got 14 years experience, Neil's got 10, Rob's got 11, um, you know, people with really lengthy experience in this, um, in this industry. So they, they know their onions, basically. That makes a big difference. That's really interesting, actually, because when you do think back to the times as a business owner that you end up recruiting for things, 
that problem is always prevalent in that you can't always have the person exactly that you want. And no. you're right, the, 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 the good recruiters always seem, and I've never thought about this before, but in hindsight, the good recruiters always seem to manage you yeah. without yeah. making you feel like you're being managed. Yeah. It's yeah. really well, good. Yeah, because part, part of my role is to is to advise, but it's also to give you market knowledge. If you're coming to me and saying, um, I want somebody who's got this much experience and this is what I'm wanting to pay them. And if I, you know, I can advise you and say, that's perfectly reasonable. That's within the salary bands that you'd expect. Um, if I was to say to you, that's not realistic. Uh, and we do have that sometimes, particularly on the IT desk, um, you know, with developers, um, you know, you'll get organizations that understandably they need to count the pennies. So they don't want to pay out big salaries. Um, but they'll be getting frustrated when they're not getting people through the door to interview. And then you have to explain, well, look, there's 12 other companies all recruiting for the same skill set as you, but they're paying 5K more. So they are getting the candidates to interview, obviously, because I know people go to work for a number of reasons, but ultimately people want paying to go to work. So they are attracted by, um, you know, the salaries. But interestingly, when we did... Um, we did a survey monkey questionnaire about reasons people leave jobs. And we were really surprised that actually um, salary came out as number four. Number four? What yeah. were the top three? Um, the top one was lack of faith in the leadership. Wow, that's yeah. good. Yeah, really interesting that, wasn't it? Really interesting. Yeah, because it's not what you'd think. Um, so yeah, and a big part of that came back to... <coughs> excuse me. Um, a big part of that came back to um, not understanding the uh, vision and mission of the organisation... So where was the company going and what part did they play in it? Well, that's very interesting because as an employee, you do sometimes feel undervalued from the perspective of, well, I just, I'm a cog in a, in a, in a machine, in an engine, and I don't really see how I fit into that bigger picture. So yeah. that's really interesting yeah. that on the ground that, you know, it really does matter, doesn't it? Definitely. Number two was um, lack of uh, recognition. So not reward, but recognition. Wow. So praise or thanks. And yeah. number three? Um, you're asking me now and I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get up. that later. We'll put that <laughs> yeah. in the show notes yeah, later. Yeah. That's fantastic. Okay, so tell us about Benchmark. We've talked about the past. Mm -hmm. What's what's Benchmark's future? Where is Benchmark going? Okay. Um, well, I recently completed the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses course. Which you recommended to me, didn't you? Yes. yes. And have you um, I did both? start it. Oh, and brilliant. I, I actually you... got a phone call last week about it. Oh, did you? Brilliant. So you'll be having an interview yes. hopefully soon. Hopefully so. Yeah. Yes. Yes. If they like me. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that was an excellent course because um, it was, I took the one in Manchester, so it was at Manchester University. But the purpose of the course was that at the end of the, it was kind of six, nine months, you will come out with a solid growth plan for your business for the next, uh, my, I did three to five years. So, um, and then after those three to five years, at some point through that, I'll plan the next three to five. But for me, I kind of have to go in chunks and in stints because you just don't know how things are going to change really. Um, but um, the, the plans we made um, were all around um, how we're going to grow the team, what sectors we're going to go into, where the business opportunities lie. So it was great because I got to share that with the team of this is where we're at, this is where we're going to, um, this is the organisational chart now, this is the organisational chart of the future, these are the development opportunities for you guys internally so they could see where they could go, um, these are the skill sets that we're going to need to look to bring in or we're going to need to look to develop internally. Um, and I suppose, yeah, just part of the bigger mission of what we're trying to achieve and what part they play in that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was really good for us to have it kind of concreted out and what sales uh, strategy supports that, what marketing collateral we need to support that and, uh, you know, how we're going to do it really, all the different steps. Um, so, yeah, and I think it was powerful to be able to share it with the team um, so that they um, felt involved. And obviously I, I made sure that 
wherever I could, I tried to um, involve them in sessions around, you know, so some of our vision, mission and value sessions, just to make sure that I had their buy-in and that mm. it wasn't me dictating, saying, well, this is what we're going to do and you're going to do this and fall into line, but that um, they felt they had some part to play in the shape of the organisation for the future, really. So they 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 will not attest to fall into category one from the survey monkey then they have <laughs> no, faith in the not. leadership yeah, hopefully, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> i like that that's fantastic okay so benchmark recruitment we've covered and uh, we obviously know why we're here to talk about interviewing and, and talking about attracting the right sort of talent for the organization but before we get to that i wonder where do you come from louisa harrison walker where mm-hmm. did you start what is your journey and how did you get to being this successful business owner that you are today um well, I was born and bred in Sheffield. Um, both my parents were teachers. Um, but I think probably good foundations for me were I had my first job when I was, I think I was about 13 when I first started working, which I don't actually think you're allowed to do now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I worked in a shop and actually that shop sold alcohol. So I definitely shouldn't have done that. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's an exposure uh, earlier. Yeah, on. it was. It's not there anymore now. So that's okay. <laughs> but a little shop in Greystones. And I worked, and it was 50p an hour that I got paid working there. 50p an hour? Yeah, and I used to have to catch the bus from Norton over to Greystones and work. It was on a Saturday. And then I started waitressing, um, and I did that two nights a week, all through school, through my A-levels. Um, and I think they were really good foundations for me for work ethic, um, de- dealing with people, um, dealing with authority, being managed, being responsible, um, all of those um, kind of skills that you, you'll only learn from doing it, really. Um, but I remember quite young, I think I must have been quite entrepreneurial quite young, because I remember starting a car washing racket with some girls I went to school with. We used to make a lot of money doing that. We had a really interesting pricing policy where we would say, we'd wash the car and we'd say, um, you can pay whatever you want, but most people give us a fiver. And so everybody would give you at least a fiver, and some people would give you more. And then we used to divvy out the money at the end of, um, you know, at the end of a Saturday. And we all used to, you know, do quite well out of that because you wash a lot of cars on a full day on a Saturday. That's fantastic. (laughs) That is such, psychologically, that is so, so good. I'm pretty sure that in certain books throughout the world, that pricing strategy (laughs) is, is just advocated and you were doing it in your teens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, do you know, I think I was about 11 when we were doing car washing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you know, obviously I'd said to my parents, you know, oh, it's only people we know just around, but to be honest, we kind of went right, you know, round our neighbourhood, but... Well, let's hope your parents aren't listening to yeah, this. Yeah, they say, well, people weren't that scared, though, those, you yeah. know, in those days, were they? they Certainly as... different times. Yeah. yeah, well, actually, it's probably not different times. It's probably just people are more kind of hyped up about, you know, all mm-hmm. danger everywhere, and the danger was was there then. We just... That's a good point. Yeah. yeah I like but yeah, that. so I had a job early, which I think was good for me, and I worked all through school, and then I had some real grafting jobs, actually, um... Before I went to university, I worked at Aldi for a year on the tills, um, which was a 13-hour shift. Good money, but you had to remember the prices of everything because this was before they had scanners. Um, yeah, and that was, you worked, you know, there was only two of you on at one time, sometimes three. So that was a hard job, you know, starting at six in the morning, working till seven at night. So I think I've always had, you know, a good work ethic and I've never been afraid to graft. Mm. Um, and I think that stood me in good stead, really, for, um, you know just getting stuck in. Mm. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about that sort of gap then between, I guess, between that kind of work and the entrepreneurial level that you're at now. Obviously you went through high street recruitment. Were you always in recruitment? Did you, did you perhaps go to uni? Did you leave uni yeah, and I went, go I to? I went to uni. I studied um, politics at university. Politics? Mm. 
because um, I don't know why, because I I looked at sociology, which is what I really enjoyed at school. And I got a good, I did, got, I think I got an A in my A-levels or a B, I can't remember, good, good grade. And I thought, mm, sociology, lots of people are going to do that. It doesn't really lead to anything. And it was literally the next page of the prospectus. The, our careers advice at school was absolutely abysmal. It's difficult because, you know, in all honesty, can you, can you at that age have any idea what you're going to be good at? Not really, but you could have better guidance. You could have more guidance around, well, what do you enjoy doing in your spare time? If you're left to your own devices, what do you do? You know, are you more of a creative thinker? Are you a more engineering mind? Um, and there was nothing like that. So um, my parents obviously were in education and further education. So it was always drilled into me that I'd go to university. So I went off to university to be honest, I chose Leeds because I had a friend that went there and when I'd been and visited him, we'd had a great time. So um, that's that was my the basis of my degree. And I worked for three years. I found it really difficult because um, I got a 2-1, so I applied myself. But it was really disengaging. The university setting of, you know, sit in a lecture hall while somebody stands at the front and talks at you, is it's not really... Um, it's not very um, inspiring, let's say. Mm. So I learned, I've always been good at repetition, which is why I was good in exams. But yeah. I, I don't think that that is the model that we should have for the future. I don't think that, that creates, um, you know, engaged and work-ready individuals at all. I think, I think you just teach people to pass tests, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you do. You just create parrots, yeah. yeah. So I was good at doing the parrot thing, so I did that. If you ask me anything now about what I studied, I, I couldn't really tell you very much <laughs> because it, it wasn't really, you know, it didn't really go into my brain that much. Uh, so it was just Long held term. held as long as you needed yeah. it to pass the exam. Yeah. yeah, And that's quite interesting because being on the front line of what you do now, how do you see that comparing to the kind of mentality? And it's the reason that I bring that up is it's something that I, I've spoken about before on this podcast and, and just in my social life in general that, as you say, the careers advice at schools and colleges has never been fantastic in the UK. It's always been a very academic style route that you mm. haven't been encouraged to do what you enjoy and then figure out how to make money at it, have you? Mm, no. And I'm starting to sense a shift in that as I see talent coming through our doors at DMSQD and, and, and just the world around me seems to be changing. From someone on the front line, is that a fair assessment? Are things changing slightly or are the mentalities of people moving? Um, I think that they are... For the last 10 years, people have been complaining about the careers advice in our schools. I think the problem really is that the people delivering the careers advice are perhaps not as commercially aware of what opportunities there are. They've not been exposed to all the different industries. One of the girls who started with us as an apprentice after six weeks with us said to me, Louisa, I can't believe how much I've learned about what jobs there are because she had no concept of what an industry sector was. You know, you can have engineering, manufacturing, legal, financial. These are all industry sectors. And within every one of those industry sectors is a multitude of jobs. And, you know, starting from here and all these different levels, and these are the different responsibilities of those jobs. And I still find it astounding that I get graduates coming to me that still don't know that. They don't know what different industry sectors exist and what job roles exist in each industry sector. That for me is a real basic that you would teach people at age 10, 11. And then people can start making more informed choices around when they do the work experience. Um, you know, is it right that we send kids to go and do one week in one sector doing one job? Or should we say, okay, of these different roles in these different industry sectors, what do you think you might have a preference for? And it's usually they've had a family member who does something or so on. So, okay, well, during your week, you're going to have a tour of three different firms, you know, one legal, one manufacturing, mm -hmm. one creative digital, 
um, and work with a PA in this one, you know, web designer in this one. And then that way they are so, so much more informed about, okay, well, I liked that environment. I found that really stuffy. Um, I couldn't do a role like that to be able to work out, you know, what, what suits them better mm. really. So I think it's, it's almost criminal that we have kids coming out of A-levels and university degrees that can't make those choices. Mm. You know, and, and we have to do a lot of managing expectations when people who've done degrees have had it drilled into them by the academics. Well, because you've done a degree, you're more employable. You can command a salary of X, Y, and Z. And then the client's employers are saying to me that they, they want people who have the experience or have the ability and they're less concerned unless it's a really specific role where you do need a specific degree. On the whole, they're less concerned with what degrees people have done and what grades they've got mm. but you know whether they've got the hands dirty at any point through their life up until that point i think it tells doesn't it from an employer's perspective because and we're going to talk about this later about the interview process and so on but certainly from experience you can tell the people that come in with a little bit more commercial experience versus those that have gone through the university system especially here in the uk because as you say the confidence is is slightly different the confidence that you had when you were in your teens, carrying out the entrepreneurial tasks that you were doing, the car washing, the job in the uh, in the shop, I've no doubt that that gave you the personal skills that you needed to get where you are today. And a lot of the university process sometimes doesn't do that, does it? And, and as an employer, it's very difficult to figure out exactly what someone's good at when all they're doing is trading on these years of experience at university. Yeah, very I would, difficult. I agree with that. Yeah, definitely. And I think the challenge I've had when I mean, we've recruited graduates in the past is that sometimes because of that sense of almost sense of entitlement, perhaps, um, that there's a reluctance to like, you know, like we said, I, I worked at Aldi, which is not a glamorous job, stacking shelves in the freezer, you know, grafting. Um, and I was not I didn't think myself too good to do that job. Um, I recognize it's a, it's a ladder and that is a rung and you have to go from one to the next, up to the next, up to the next. And the problem that, that you we face now with the, um, the way in which we, um, still prioritize higher education over work experience is that the people coming out of higher education want to start halfway up the ladder. You know, they're not, don't see that actually you have to start down there and work your way up. Um, and so, yeah, that, that can be a challenge, really. Uh, that's very, very interesting, that, from from my perspective, to see that coming from someone who's on the front line, who sees candidates and employers in their bare-bones kind of state, you know, when they're really desperate, either for the role or for the employee. It's really, really interesting because I've seen it myself and never really recognised it. Mm. Graduates coming in and, mm. and, and wanting to start either on a, a salary that on paper kind of looks justified but in our in our kind of industry in the digital industry if you say well look let's do a sample project could you build this and the answer is <laughs> is invariably no well, probably not no and it's so difficult to then go back to them and say well listen guys you know you you don't actually justify this mm. salary because I've got an 18 year old here who's built two of these things already just because they liked doing mm. it. There's a big challenge around, if you think about the subjects that universities teach as well, like I talked about earlier, you know, choosing sociology, politics, are they linked to the industry that I'm in in any way? No. Um, some of the computer science degrees, those candidates are 
as soon as they come out of their degrees, they are, you know, on the job market, they've got offers. They, you know, um, they get snapped up. A lot of them get snapped up before they even finish. Um, but there are obviously lots of degrees that don't really transfer into the working world. And unless you're going to go on and teach that subject, um, it's leaving the employers, particularly in a region like this where it's SMEs, it's leaving the employers with a big gap to plug, a big training need to um, address. Um, and we talked earlier, didn't we, about people being work ready and people having the right attitude for work and all of those things. Um, my brother, who's a teacher, we have arguments really because he would say that education isn't there to prepare people for work. That's not what it's for. Um, but you can't deny that if our, if our schooling and higher education system carries on the way it is, the skills gap that I can see already in this region is going to um, escalate mm. and it's going to be a major problem that what the universities and schools are churning out is not what commerce and industry needs right now. And who's plugging and addressing this gap we're looking to the employers to say, well, take on the graduates, train them yourselves. But most employers that we work with, particularly in, in the SME market, don't have that capacity. And they don't have the financial stability to do that either, especially at, at SME level. No. And if you look at sort of micro employers, the guys that are 10 and under, yeah. it's very difficult to foot the financial bill of someone that's a graduate. So therefore, I guess therefore feels like they can command a specific salary that's much higher. As you said, they're going in higher up the ladder. Mm. But yet, you, you've got an element of training that you would need to give to an apprentice. Yeah, yeah. They, they will still require an element of hand-holding. Mm. And I suppose it's... What I found interesting is it's not just the financial um, implications of needing to kind of get somebody up to speed. Obviously, it's a time... You know, there's a time um, restraint on employers. But it's more actually... A lot of the business owners, and particularly in the creative digital sector, where a lot of them are technically minded entrepreneurs they lack the ability or skill to do it themselves anyway. So with the best of intentions, they will take on somebody that requires some support and training, but they are not themselves trainers. And then that can pose a problem. Well, it's one thing to be very good at a task and it's another thing to be a a trainer. I always use the example of golf coaches. People always, and this 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 is actually a really random example, but I find it sums it up best. It's very rare that a golf coach, a very good golf coach, the Butch Harmons of the world, have been that good at golf. Mm. And it's amazing because you'd think, well, they must have been the best at that game. But it's, they're not. They're just better at teaching. Yeah. and It's like, a completely different skill set, isn't it? Exactly. Doing it or teaching somebody to do it. Yeah. You, you, need, you require different things. It's usually different, isn't it? Yeah. Interestingly, we've talked about where you've come from. We've talked about mm-hmm. benchmark recruitment and obviously that's a great success and it's doing well. And you guys work with people on the front line, as I said, the employees and the employers. Thinking about the candidates that you get through the door, I'd like to just move on to what we spoke about briefly in the sort of pre-interview warm-up, which was the generational gap, mm-hmm. that difference between the baby boomers, the generation X and the new generation Y, the millennials that are really... Starting to, I would imagine, come through your door more mm. and more and more in, in roles that just didn't exist before. Yeah. How are you guys dealing with that? What are, what are you guys doing or do you have to do to accommodate all of these different types yeah. of people? Well, it, it's interesting because only recently we did an exercise about uh, baby boomers, Generation X, Generation Y, and the most appropriate ways to approach and maintain contact with each of the different sections. Because this is the first time 
you know, when I started in recruitment 15 years ago, obviously we didn't have Generation Y. It was only baby boomers and Generation X, which is me. So that was quite straightforward. This is the first time really where you've got all three generations in play at once. And so sometimes your client's going to be a baby boomer and the candidate's going to be a Generation Y. And there is, it, it, it is like, um, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It's like two different species talking to each other. And that's why actually as an intermediate, you play a really important role um, because um, what the baby boomers hold hold dear and important and the way in which they, the things they place value on are very different to the Generation Y. So baby boomers are going to prefer a more traditional working environment. They would always expect somebody to come to an interview in a suit. Um, you know, they would expect nine to five thirty wor- working. And, you know, if you were to say, oh, you know, perhaps could have worked four days or a day from home. On the whole, obviously, I'm making some sweeping generalizations here, but on the whole, um, you know, it's a more traditional mindset. Um, and um, you know, I, I I I have a lot of respect for the way that, that baby boomers operate. Um, it's a challenge now because the skill sets that a lot of baby boomers require are only really held by some of the generation Y, particularly um, creative digital IT wise, you know, the new developers, um, social media, you know, there's, um, yeah, a, a lot of those skills now are held with generation Y candidates who, um, if I'm honest, um, yeah, are a challenging group in terms of, um, getting them engaged in the whole um, recruitment process, the whole having to go through stages. They're just so instant, aren't they? They, You know, they they want and expect everything instantly. Um, And so long protracted recruitment processes definitely don't work with um, Mm. Generation Y candidates. And if I'm honest, traditional face-to-face interviews on the whole, I don't think are that effective with uh, Generation Y candidates. Um, That's very interesting because I always... I always found it interesting. I'm sort of, I'm not Generation Y, really. I think if, if mm-hmm. you look at me on paper, I'd just about fit in. But we spoke about this earlier, yeah. didn't we? I'm sort of Generation X. I've got, a, I've got one foot in, in, in either camp, I guess. But I always found interviews to be very easy. Mm. I was always good at getting jobs, but it, not because I was any better than anyone else, because I knew what to say. Yeah, you could play the interview game. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I always found that very intriguing. And yeah. I, I guess... I didn't really recognize the entrepreneurial mind at play. Yeah. But I think I was always thinking to myself, this is an opportunity here and I can bend this and manipulate it to my will. This interview, this type of person, I can see what these yeah, people hold yeah, dear. Well, you're, you're communicative, aren't you? You can build good rapport with people and you're communicative and you've, you've obviously got high emotional intelligence. And so that's what interviews are about. It's testing in a one-on-one situation are you, um, you know, do I like you ultimately is what an interview is about. And unless the role you're interviewing for is specifically around emotional intelligence, ability to sell yourself, it's not necessarily the best way to test whether somebody's right for that job. So I've had situations in the past where I've had technical administrators where the skill set required is, you know, methodical attention to detail, complete finishers. And, you know, someone will say, oh, yeah, they're not, um, they're not, they've not been successful because, you know, they weren't as bubbly. And so when you think bubbly is not the skill set you need for the job, the, they need to be able to do the technical aspects of the role. People that are more technical are less bubbly. That's the way it goes. Um, but often people want, um, you know, the moon on a stick really they often want somebody that'll be 
we get it a lot with developers and that's always interesting you know somebody that's really good at back-end coding that's really you know happy to sit coding for hours and hours and hours but could also be really good client facing and go out and do presentations you know they are two completely different skill sets and two completely different jobs and finding somebody that can do both of those is is unrealistic yeah, um, that's that's very very interesting. That because we we see that internally at DMSQD because obviously we interview a lot of sort of developmental people, people that will code, and you have to have an appreciation of their skills, don't yeah. you? You've got to understand that just because someone comes in and they are shy or they are their mind works in a particular way and they communicate in such a manner that is perhaps a little bit more. I wouldn't say abrupt, but it's but certainly more concise. More introvert. Yeah. In, yeah. Being an introvert is not a bad thing. No, no. It's not. But but the way in which we judge whether somebody is good to employ or not by using an interview, it, it favours extroverts. It favours confident people that in a one-on-one situation don't get intimidated. Mm. And most jobs, sales jobs, obviously you need to be able to do that. That is part of the skill you're testing is, you know, can you present? Can you close? Can you, you know, all of those things. But most of the roles don't require, once you're in the job, you to sit in a one-on-one situation like that. So, um, I mean, I talked to you in the the, um, pre-interview about assessment centers that we run and how I found that such an eye-opener. Instead of saying, okay, sit in an interview, tell me what you can do. We design competency-based tasks around the specific job that we're recruiting for. And it's a case of show me what you can do. So the tasks will be linked directly to the job. The employers like kind of Alan Sugar there, you know, just observing. They have a scoring matrix and it'll be a morning of five or six different, um, you know, tasks, um, some groups, some some singular. Um, and you will observe the person doing what they would be doing in the role. And that way you get such a better idea as to whether somebody um, can do what they say they can do, whether actually there's a slight training need there, but you could work with that, or whether the training need is too big and you don't have the capacity to, to help with that. You see how they, because normally have six or eight people on an assessment centre, you see how they react to other people. That's really interesting. And observing people in the downtime as well, how they chat to other people, you see, um, you just see people in a more natural environment. So it's, it's a simulation, I guess, of yes. what they will be like yes. in a in a real life employed role yes which is really interesting and you know if you think back to what all the interviews that you've been through as a candidate yeah I I got every job I went for because I was good at interviews exactly and as you said sort of about me you you can obviously communicate it's why you're here doing the podcast and it's it's one of those situations where when I think back to the all the interviews that I've done would I have got the job had I gone through that assessment process? <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? And that's well, quite maybe, a scary thought. Yeah, it is. But ultimately what happens is the best person for the job gets the job. So I've had people on assessment days where they haven't had experience in that field, but they possess the competencies needed for the job. And because of the assessment center, they've had the opportunity to demonstrate they can do those role, that, that job and that role, and they've got offered the job. So I had a field sales one recently. It was kind of like a 30K field sales job. And the chap um, that, that got the job, had he, he, he had a little bit, but nowhere near some of the other people in the room. But he just outshone everybody on the day. He was the most junior person, but he just was just an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, and demonstrated um, all the skills that they were looking for. And um, yeah, it was great. And I was really pleased that he got the job because had those CVs gone in a pile 
and they said, choose who you want to interview, he wouldn't have got chosen for an interview. And that's, that's purely down to the fact that he was the most junior in the room at the yeah. time. Yeah, and people still judge based on a piece of paper. They'll still say, you know, let's look at this. Because often with assessment centres, I will not show CVs until they come to the interview part at the end because I don't want people to prejudge based on, oh, well, they only did six months there. That must mean they're a job hopper, um, you know, or, um, you know, questions that will come up based on um, prejudices, basically, of what, of what you see instead of meeting somebody, judging them in their entirety, and then using a CV as a guide to ask, you know, well, tell me about when you did here and mm. so on, as, as a, comp- a guide for competency-based interviewing, not as a precursor for would I interview or not based on what's written here. Because in the same way, I'll always say to a candidate, um, if I was to put a job to them, if I was to ring them and tell them about a job, I tell them the whole, you know, all about it, the company, the benefits, um, you know, the opportunity for progression, everything. If I was to just send them an email with a job spec and say, read that, do you want to go forward? They would make assumptions about that job based on on what what they'd read on the piece of paper. And it's exactly the same as with CVs. It's not an informed decision. Mm. You know, it's, it's a little snapshot. So that's a real, a real, I guess, positive way to do recruitment as well. It's not a, yeah. it's, it isn't bums on seats. It's not numbers. It's not statistics. It's not, it's not the just putting the people into the slots. It's not sticking a round peg into a square hole sort of thing. It is really kind of, it's like the match.com, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Often, often I've said that. I've often said what we do is like a dating agency, but for employment, um, you know, you go out and visit your client and you see their offices, you see the premises, you meet the team, you get a feel for the company culture, um, you know, what the values of the organization are. And then my role is to then um, assess the suitability of a selection of candidates to match that. So I will then shortlist that down to the strongest three to four. And we advertise it so widely, you know, you cast the net really wide and you telephone screen everyone that applies from there, you face-to-face interview anybody that passes your telephone screen. And then from that pool, you shortlist the strongest three to four to go forward to meet the client. So by the time the client sees people, those people are really refined and should be absolutely bang on. And it's a case of choosing from those people, really. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it, is a, it is a lengthy process. But um, we talked earlier about, you know, you'd kind of ask me what would be um, advice that I would give or actionable tips that I would give employers. And I think... Um, Knowing what your company's um, culture and values are is probably the single most important thing for your recruitment process. And I can say that as somebody that's gone through that myself because um, I made a few bad hires early on because you do, you know, you you learn as you go along. Um, I went for the people with experience because I thought, well, they've they've obviously done it before. They'll know what they're doing. Um, and it never really occurred to me. I didn't really understand about company culture and company values early on. And these people didn't quite work in my business and I couldn't really work out why. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later when, um, you know, I discovered a lot more, read a lot more about, um, you know, vision, mission, values, where you're going, how you're going to get there, what's the characteristics of the people on that journey with you. And that is what we use as, pardon the pun, but the benchmark for all our recruitment going forward. So there's people sat in my team now who don't have any recruitment experience, but possess the the right characteristics and have the same values and morals as we do, that we know we can teach how to do recruitment, but I can't change their attitude. That is what they come with. So I think um, 
mindset and attitude is so much more important than actually um, the technical experience. Because if you've got people in your business that have the technical experience, they can share and teach. And actually it cements their learning when they offer peer support and show other people. But if you get somebody who's got a bad attitude, they will always have a bad attitude. That's really, really, really insightful. Because it's something that you see so many businesses struggling with. And if there are, if there are listeners out there who are, who are struggling with constantly finding the right person and, you know, bringing the people in that they constantly have to, you know, discuss moving on with and people are leaving the business. Yeah, it's really demotivating for the team that's left yeah. behind as well, isn't it? If you if you make a bad hire, uh, obviously there's the, the cost to you in terms of what they did or didn't do, you know, the impact on your client base or, you know, your service providers, um, but the impact on the team is quite, you know, noticeable if, if somebody comes in and doesn't work out. So I think um, there's really simple steps that you can take right from the onset to make sure that as well as your job spec, you have a really clear person spec um, and that you are judging people. And we, as part of our interview process, we have three stage interview process. And one of the stages is an informal drink at the bar down the road, because you want to know when people have not got their game face on and you're just chatting about, you know, what do you do in your personal life? What do you do, you know, socially? Um, and, just to get a feel for whether somebody is the right kind of person, the right kind of vibe for your company. And I think you need to create an environment in which people can do that. And a a one-on-one interview in a boardroom or in an interview room doesn't do that really. Let's Um, just talk a little bit further about that job spec and personal spec, because I find that really interesting. Traditionally, as obviously you guys know, you do, you just get a job spec, don't you? Yeah. What's, what is the sort of the steps that people would need to take as a business owner to write a confident person spec? Person spec. I, I think if if an organisation hasn't, when we did our vision, mission and value session, we involved our team in that because um, it's easy for you as a business owner to say, well, I think this is um, what's important, you know, these values. Um, but actually the people on the grassroots level that are doing it are the ones that know the most. So um we had a session with our team where we said, okay, what are um, what are the things that we hold most dear? What is it that we're proud of that we do and so on? And out of that, we came out with six values that we held dear. Um, so ours are to um, behave with um, honesty and integrity, to have fun and enjoyment in our job and to listen and respond to our clients. Now, they're really simple. It's not, if I'm honest with you, we probably could have jazzed it up more, but that's what came from them. So I didn't want to quash that. I was like, okay, that's fine. That's what we know is important. So... Um, if, if as an organization you haven't got anything like that, you absolutely have to um, pull together your team to say, um, you know, what, what are the values that we think are the most important um, for somebody to come and fit in here? And your team will know, they'll know what's really important. Have a really open conversation with them about what kind of characteristics don't work. You know, what would be the worst? I often ask that when I go and visit a client and I'll say, um, what would be the worst kind of personality that could come in here? Who would rub somebody up the wrong way? Because often you know that more than you know what would be perfect. Um, And so then you've got a framework of this is essential. They must possess this X, Y, and Z. And if they show any inkling of this, this, and this, we know that won't work. Um, Especially in small teams, because I think in a huge organization, you can get away with having different personalities. And, you know, um, in a smaller organization, you know, making sure that everyone's on the same page is, is really, is really important, isn't it? I think it's huge. And, and the small teams just amplify things, don't they? In, yeah. in a large team, in a large organization, 
little sub teams form or little cliques form and you know you, there's a lot of noise out there but as you say in a small team everything is amplified to the nth degree and and I spoke I think last week perhaps with someone about certain managerial sort of roles especially from the baby boomer generation and this is a wild generalization so I apologize to anyone listening uh, who this may offend but where people have let very, very good candidates and very good employees go because they've worked in such a small team and such a small nuance of that person's personality has become such a huge, mm. huge problem personally to the manager mm. that they've just let them go. A technically competent mm. and very, very good for the business person mm. has been let go because of a small nuance in the personality. Mm. So I think that's superb advice. That's really, really valuable. Mm. Um, so number one then, actionable tip, be clear on your company's vision and culture. Yeah, because I think that's your starting point. I think if you get people that match the culture of your organisation, they will stay long-term. You know, you could bring in somebody who's got the most, you know, the best technical skills or whatever skills you're looking for, but if their values are not aligned with your organisation, they're not going to stay long-term. You're going to want different things ultimately. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, what else can the guys do out there then that are looking to recruit? What's the uh, what, what's the next sage piece of advice? My number two piece of advice would be um, design your recruitment process. Um, give real consideration to what is it that I am looking to identify, and what is the best way to do that. So, um, what are the skill sets I'm looking for, and does a traditional face to face interview uh, demonstrate that you know will, will that give me that answer um, a really good video to look up is the um the heineken recruitment campaign video where they did it was for a graduate um i mean this is a really kind of light-hearted one but it's interesting because it does make you think about um different ways of teasing things out of people so the heineken um, recruitment campaign was for a graduate intern and um they played some kind of cruel tricks on him really but um you know things like um when they went to go and collect him in reception, the person held his hand all the way to the interview room, you know, to see how he'd react to it, whether he was kind of comfortable. To the, and then um, the guy in the interview pretended to have some sort of um, like um, fainting on the floor. And it was like, how did, you know, did he, did he respond to it? Did he deal with it? Um, loads of different funny things. You need to look it up, but it, it's just interesting for um, the whole giving people an opportunity to demonstrate what they can do rather than tell you. I would really move away from a tell me, tell me and into a show me, show me. And you always, if you are doing a, an, an interview uh, where you're asking questions, which ultimately people always feel like they need to do, um, it always needs to be competency-based. So tell me about a time when, give me an example of, can you evidence because otherwise people will just, um, you know, whitewash and just, you know, kind of give stock answers really. So you, you need those um, answers um, demonstrating evidence and exampling so that you can ultimately, um, if you feel the need to, verify those facts. That makes sense. So tip number two, design your recruitment process to suit your business. Yeah. And that's fantastic. Yeah. And is there... Is there any resources online that people can look up for this sort of thing? This is something that's new to me, actually. So um, do you know, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, there's loads of things on our website, which is just benchmarkrecruit.co.uk. So there's, there's loads of information there about different ways to run um, recruitment campaigns. Because also, if you're trying to do it yourself, I mean, obviously, it's a full-time job. But if you're doing it yourself, you need to think about what's your social media strategy, what and where are you putting it out to. Um, if you're working with consultancies or agencies, you know, how are you going to manage those relationships? And there's there's so much around how to do that and do that properly. Um, how to identify who's good, who's decent, who's actually going to be worth the fee that you're paying to them. Because 
if you get a, a strategic relationship with a good recruiter going, um, life is a lot easier. You can literally put in a phone call and say, this is what I need. Um, right, put the phone down, you get on with your job and then they deliver that shortlist to you and you get to interview and choose. If you're going to do um, you know, that legwork, you need to think about, um, when I do it for myself, I'll have um, the first stage, like a telephone scoring sheet. So anyone that replies to the advert, I'll telephone screen and I'll have set questions um, where I'll score from naught to three, how much they can evidence or example those competencies. If they pass that, then they'll go through to a face-to-face interview. We ask them to do a little presentation and to, to make it interesting and engaging, we'll ask them to do a presentation um, not linked to recruitment or what they would do in the job because that's a bit, can be a bit tricky, but to actually see, given the opportunity to be a bit creative, what they come back with. Um, and I think you need to think about making sure it's interesting and engaging People will get switched off if you overtask them, you know, and if they've got options and they've got three or four things on the table, that's not to say they're lazy, but you need to really think about how you word what you're asking them to do. Um, but yeah, I think um, in terms of alternative ways of, of looking at your recruitment, I say, yeah, probably our website is a good starting point. I'm not really that aware of, I'm not because we've kind of organically done it ourselves, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good because you're innovating in that space then. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. fantastic. So you can yeah. check out benchmarkrecruit.co.uk. Yeah. And Louisa, can the guys get hold of you on Twitter? Where are you on Twitter? Yeah, so um, me personally, I'm at Louisa Benchmark and um, there's also at Benchmark Rec. At Benchmark Rec yeah, and at Louisa Benchmark. Yeah. Super stuff. All right, so two fantastic tips. Any more? My final one, and um, this is something that is massively overlooked. I was amazed at the number of companies that don't induct people properly. I mean, I find it staggering. You will go to all the effort of finding somebody, go through a whole recruitment campaign, appoint somebody, and then throw them in at the deep end and hope for the best. And then wonder why they leave after three or six months. And, you know, often in our, because obviously what we do is we introduce the candidate to the client. And what happens to them after that point is out of our control. But often... Uh, the client will, uh, the candidate leaves, the client will come back and kind of imply that you were to blame in some way, you know, and I, I always kind of have to remind, well, they're not my child. I didn't raise the person. Um, so when you talked about sort of innovating in that space, what, what we have come up with, which is um, working really well now with um, the organizations we work with is a full induction checklist and booklet, because I was amazed that People don't have, a lot of companies just don't have anything. They don't have anything actually, um, you know, they'll do like a standard first day show you around, but then that's pretty much it. Um, so we kind of thought there's, there's a need here to help people bed people in better. So I'd put one together for our own staff for when they start, which is like a three to six month training book and workbook. So I've adapted that and white labeled it so that clients can use it. So it has um, all the kind of legal requirement checklists that you need to do, but then it has learning styles questionnaire, so if you don't find out on the first day what your preferred learning style of your new recruit is, you are probably going to be teaching them things in a manner that doesn't suit them. And then when they don't retain it and you get frustrated about that, um, you'll, you'll probably blame them when actually you probably didn't assess at the beginning, well, am I doing it? Are they a reflector? Are they a theorist? Are, you know, are they a pragmatist? Are they an activist? What's my style? I'm an out-and-out activist. So I'm, if I train a reflector, I have to really give it consideration what I'm doing. I have to really adapt my style. I'm better trained in activists, obviously. Um, but you've got to play to your strengths, haven't you? So if you're not very good at that, you need to ask somebody else to do it or really put that hat on. Um, and then there's also driver's motivator, motivations questionnaire. So um, 
what is important for you at work are you victory led are you independence are you materialistic you know what, what are you recognition and um, so that you as a manager or business owner can make sure you're using the right language with that person so when you're doing the reviews or when you're talking about the task you need them to do and you're painting the bigger picture that it plays a part of you're using the right language that's going to engage and motivate them um and then we've also put in there um review documents so month one review mid probation review end of probation review and an annual appraisal because if as a new recruit you start somewhere and you're given this information that says like we're gonna we care enough about you to make sure that we understand how you learn what's important to you and we commit that we will sit down and regularly review your progress at these intervals and those get dates get put into the diary the mindset of that recruit starting with you will be so much different to I've had people starting jobs you know three weeks in they've still not got a phone they've still not got you know um, certain passes or you know just basics and that first impression you never get a second chance to make a first impression and if it's not a really good one then that will affect how somebody buys into your business and your role and how long they'll stay with you so I think if you that would be my my third tip would be make sure you give proper consideration to that person's um, bedding in period you know, provide them with a buddy or a mentor, someone they can go to to ask, but just make sure that you've outlined um, a training plan, um, a review dates, and that they're committed and in the diary and that you do them, that you don't say, oh, well, actually, I've got to do this now, so that needs to move. You know, you're not that important. This is more important than you. Because, um, you know, you can't build a business without your people, can you? So if you if you invest in them right from the onset, I think you've got a much better chance of, you know, a higher retention rate. And surely that goes directly towards solving the top two problems that we spoke about earlier on when mm. people leave a business. Yeah, definitely. That, that's a direct solution to that sort of problem, isn't it? Yeah. So that's uh, that's fantastic advice. So just to recap those in a list format for the guys listening, tip number one, be clear on your vision and culture within the business. Yeah. Tip number two, design your own recruitment process for the business to suit you. Yeah. And number three, make sure you induct and embed the people properly within the business. And I guess just taking it on from that, is there any way that people, when they when they are finding problems, perhaps throughout that induction process, mm-hmm. this is just something that's popped into my mind. Are there any, I guess, small hacks or tweaks they can make to their own internal processes to kind of figure out what's going wrong if it is going wrong early? Is there anything in that kind of space we can yeah, well, talk I about? Well, I think if you're having if you're having regular conversations with people, I mean, we do when we when we bring on people here, we do um, week one, um, month one, month three, month six. But they know that at any point, I mean, they have weekly one-to-ones, our guys. Um, but I think something that's often missed, when somebody comes into your business, they're coming in with a fresh pair of eyes. And obviously you you feel a need to indoctrinate them into your ways, which is fine. But I think a, a hack, I suppose, I, I would recommend is um, once somebody's been in your business for a couple of weeks to sit them down have with a coffee and say, okay, um, I'm really interested in your opinion on what you've seen so far. You know, I would be really interested on how does it compare to where you've worked before? Um, You know, what do you think we do really well? What do you think we could do better? I think it's about providing an an environment where you are allowing somebody the freedom to really be honest in a non-judgmental way. If you were to say, you know, um, well, how do you think it's going? Or I'm a bit concerned about this, a bit concerned about that, you know, really early on. Um, you're going to shut people down. Whereas if you, you know, if you, if you're really open and, and actually you will probably get some really insightful feedback from that, from people, you know, being honest and saying, well, I don't understand why we do this this way. Surely it would be quicker if you just did that. Um, you know, I think you probably get, 
um, you know, tweaks that are, that are probably really beneficial. And it's really, it's really good for the relationship as well, isn't it? That, that one of the big problems is that kind of hierarchical relationship between managers, mentors, and the people that are just entering an organization, you know, when you think about it and it's really, <laughs> really silly, traditional sense, you it know, is, last yeah. in first out yeah. sort of that real base mentality that really goes somewhere to getting over that, doesn't it? Yeah, that relationship. I think if you were saying, I, I value your opinion and I trust your judgment and I'm interested in what, you know, your insights or what, uh, you know, what you can, sometimes, you know, some people are more confident than others, but I think it's just giving them that forum, isn't it? So some of the review documents we use prompt that they mm. actually, you know, kind of make it really easy for people to say, you know, um, my success would be improved if this changed, or, you know, I think that the business would be more efficient if, and mm. so on. So I think. I think that's really useful because it's a door that is open from day one is much easier to walk through than a door that is open halfway through. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it just breeds the relationship. It breeds the positivity, the optimism, the openness. And yeah. as you said earlier, the business is nothing. No one's business is anything without the people and allowing those people to communicate like that from day one. Yeah. Surely that has to be fantastic for the business. Yeah, definitely. But I, I still, I still think there's still a bit of a mind shift required for people to get that, to get that your business isn't you, it's everybody else in it. And I think sometimes employers um, still have that old school mentality of, well, people should be grateful. I'm offering them a job. And, you know, and, and you do, you, you come up with that, you come up against that a lot and you think that's fine. You can hold dear to that mindset, but you won't hold your staff. They will go and work somewhere where somebody makes them feel valued and appreciated. And because good candidates are hard to come by, good, really good employees are not in abundance. That's why our job is really hard at the moment. There's a lot of say relationship management, a lot of, um, you know, getting passive candidates, people that don't necessarily realize they're looking, you know, a lot of headhunting, you know, real, a lot of searching and sourcing to find people because there's an abundance of people on the market, but not an abundance of great people. So if you've got some good people, you know, you've got to hold on to them. The cost to you of losing them and then re-recruiting and retraining is immense. Louisa, that is a superb place to leave it, actually. You will not believe how long we've been talking for been talking for an hour you're joking i wow. kid you not <laughs> no, that's fantastic and just once again before we wrap things up remind people where they can get hold of you online yeah sure so um via the website which is benchmarkrecruit.co.uk um twitter is um at benchmark rec and me is at louisa benchmark and we're on facebook um and linkedin as well Louisa Harrison-Walker, thank you so much. That's fantastic. Thank you. And for you listeners out there, thank you as ever for listening. Don't forget to head on over to excellence-expected.com to get hold of your free copy of my ebook, which will teach you how to generate more time every single day to do the things that you want to enjoy. And if you do enjoy the show, head on over to iTunes for us, please, and just leave us a nice review. We'd really appreciate that. Until next time, guys, the more you expect from yourself, the more you'll excel. See you soon.